Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. Contemporary society is preoccupied by risk. Doctors evaluate their patients in terms of the risk of disease. Police counsel citizens about the risk of crime. Everyday objects carry their corona of risk. Dinner might pose heart attack risks. Baby's crib might be a safety risk. And risks make waves. One case of mad cow disease can cripple the agrarian economy of Western Canada. No actual harm need be done. The risk society, as some have called it, is our subject tonight on Ideas. We'll be concerned not with how real this or that risk might be, but with risk as a way of understanding and managing the world. The program continues a series called In Search of Security by David Cayley. The term risk society was launched by a German sociologist called Ulrich Beck, who published a book called Risk Society in 1986. He argued that applied science has now produced so many potential catastrophes, from nuclear winter to global warming, that a new type of society has appeared. Once, he says, modern societies expected progress, and their main source of social tension was competition between classes over the distribution of goods. But now, he argues, the perverse effects of progress have overwhelmed this expectation and social classes compete to avoid bads. This new order is symbolized by the gated community, in which people band together against danger. The future has become a frightening place, and precaution a way of life. Criminologist Clifford Shearing co-directs a Center for Security and Justice Studies at the Australian National University. One of the important elements that um, Ulrich Beck mentioned was that we used to be able to operate that let's just do things on a trial and error basis, and if we, we mess up, that's okay. We will have be able to develop the knowledge and capacity to fix it up. So it doesn't matter if we mess up a bit. Let's go on and let's do things. So we don't have to anticipate all the spin-off effects. We don't have to anticipate what the future will be before we've done it. We can just go ahead and do it. And then we'll deal with the consequences after those consequences occur. Well, of course, there's been an enormous change. As the things we do have massive effects that create outcomes that we may not have and very often do not have the knowledge and capacity to deal with. So Ulrich Beck was saying one of the interesting things is that our knowledge, our scientific knowledge, is creating consequences that that knowledge itself is unable to respond to effectively when it happens. So that if a nuclear power station blows its top, we might not be able to just wait and say, well, let's wait for that to happen, and then we'll clean up afterwards. Or I'm living in Australia at the moment. If the ozone gets a lot thinner here, we were not able to say, well, let's wait until the ozone is completely gone, and then we'll see what we can do about it. So 
there is the sense that we have to be more concerned about anticipating, that we have to think about the future consequences of our actions before we act more than we had to before. Clifford Shearing speaks here of real and present dangers, like ozone depletion, and these are what mainly concern Ulrich Beck in his description of risk society. But other scholars have taken the idea of risk society a step further and examined how risk also becomes a way of looking at the world and structuring our response to it. One of the people who has developed this line of thought is Australian Pat O'Malley. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Criminology at Carleton University, and he's edited an anthology called Crime and the Risk Society. He says that risk, ultimately, is a form of government. Government. The idea of government, whether it's performed by private sector, public sector, by individuals, by organisations, for we, we do govern ourselves, that government is increasingly seen to be about risk. The classic way in which we most organisations have been set up and run over the last 250 years has been the model of discipline. That is a model in which we take an individual case, we compare it to a norm, we look for the difference between the individual and the norm, whether that norm is an average or that norm is an ideal, like health for example, and then we move the individual in the direction of the norm. Schools are like that, universities, hospitals, clinics, prisons. Almost every institution we can think of is based on that model. And it creates individuals. It creates individuals by taking a person, building up a case record for them, and, and examining them, which is that term examination which we use in almost every context of life. All of those institutions I mentioned have examinations of one kind or another, whether it's a clinical examination or a school examination. And so we build up a case record and that case record is what is compared to the norm. And deviations in the case record are then corrected. Ergo, we call prisons correctional. Now, there is undoubtedly a major turn in the way in which government is being carried out. That is increasingly in the direction of defining problems, not as pathologies that have already gone wrong, but as risks. That is, things that can be seen as likely to occur in the future and that are preventable, that we can do something about. So the most obvious example in everyday life would be health, where if we were to look at how we govern our health now, it's overwhelmingly in the direction of governing risks. We govern our diet, we govern our alcohol intake, we govern whether we smoke or not, we go for medical checkups to see whether we are manifesting any risk indicators, whether there are risk factors in our family background, whether there are risk factors in our exercise regime. If we don't exercise enough or if we exercise too much or if we do the wrong kind of exercise. Now, that framework of thinking has, to me, very important resonances with neoliberalism, which I won't go into right now. But in the area of criminal justice, that shift has been registered in many and important ways. The first, perhaps most important, 
has been a huge change in crime prevention. That is, again, 30 years ago, crime prevention was a pretty marginal area of policing and government work. Now it's a very major area. And crime prevention is risk-based. That is, we are thinking about crime as something that might happen and we should intervene to stop it happening rather than waiting for it to happen and then correcting. We intervene up front to prevent. And crime prevention overall, I think, is most closely now associated with what, what are called criminogenic situations. So criminogenic situation is a situation in which crimes can be performed. And much of the intervention that's going on now is to increase security by tinkering with those situations. Two fairly obvious examples. One, that urban planners frequently now think in terms not of throughways, of long, of roads going from point A to point B, but of a sort of lung-like model in which each area has a major entrance into it. And that major entrance branches out, and then those branches branch out. But in the end, the road doesn't go anywhere. To get into this area, you have to go in and you have to come out by the same point. Now that does two things. One is, it cuts down the volume of traffic in the area. And that means people are going to be noticed. There is no longer a through traffic. If you're in that area, it's because you've got business in that area. And that makes observation much easier. But also they've got to get out. There's only one way out. And so it makes intervention easier if you want to apprehend someone, a stolen car or something like this. It doesn't require a gate. It doesn't require anything visible like security guards. It's designed in. Another, the other classic example, which is so much part of our lives now that we don't think about it, is the speed hump in the road. Now, that's a classic risk model because it says, well, people can still speed. They're not likely to because it's going to damage their car and be very uncomfortable for them. But what we will do is we will simply make it riskier for people to do a behavior we don't want them to do. So we put humps in the road. Or we educate the public in how to make their houses more secure against crime. And this crops up now all the time. In risk society, as Pat O'Malley understands it, People don't try to correct problems after the fact. They try to anticipate and outsmart them. Sometimes this requires precaution or clever design. At other times, it's a question of how risk is distributed. Pat O'Malley takes as an example so-called three strikes laws, which impose a disproportionately heavy sentence after a third felony conviction. One of the arguments about three strikes and you're out is that it's a risk-based model of sentencing. It says, I'm not actually sentencing you for this last crime that you have committed. I'm sentencing you on the basis of the risk that you represent. This third indictable crime is a risk indicator. It's a risk factor because we know from evidence that people who've committed three indictable crimes within a certain period are almost 100% likely to commit another. Therefore, I will put you away for a very long period of time, not because you've just stolen a pizza, 
but because stealing the pizza was a risk factor. My logic of sentencing is risk-based, both statistically, I'm going to put you away because statistically you're a high risk, but also my purpose in putting you away is to reduce risk to the community. Three strikes laws punish an offender not for what he has done, but for what he might do. The penalty is disproportionate to the actual offense. This violates classical principles of criminal justice, which hold that punishment should reflect only the act in question, and not what the offender has done in the past or might do in the future. But Pat O'Malley points out that risk-based sentencing is understood differently by its proponents. They see it not as a violation of justice, but rather as a new way of doing justice. It would be argued, no, it doesn't violate justice. It's argued it provides a different model of justice. So we say now, we take for granted that justice means proportionality of offence and sentence. That is, the sentence should reflect the seriousness of the act. We take that for granted, but in fact it's only really been with us in any systematic fashion since the late 18th century, unless you believe that stealing a loaf of bread and the death penalty were, was proportional. So the argument is twofold. One is there's still a proportion, but the proportion is now between the risk and the sentence, not the offence and the sentence. The second key argument built into this, and I think this is one of the other connections with neoliberalism, is that the burden of risk is shifted. This was a term used back in the 70s in England by a very, very influential report on risk and justice, where it was argued that the welfare sanction put the risk on the community because we would deal with the light hand with offenders and we would attempt to correct them but we would then our main aim would be to release them as soon as possible as soon as it seemed likely that they were corrected it was argued that this puts the burden of risk on potential victims and incoming governments from the mid 80s onwards have said well that's not fair that's not just Justice should be that the burden of risk is carried by the offender. And things like three strikes do that. They say, if you continue to offend, then the burden of risk will be shifted onto your shoulders. It might be that you wouldn't have offended more. That's a risk, and it's a risk you will carry, not the community. Risk-based sentencing can be understood, Pat O'Malley says, as one element of a new account of justice. He himself opposed the practice in Australia, where its main effect was to increase the already disproportionate number of Aboriginals in jail. But his point, for our purposes here, is that many people now believe that those who create risks for others should, in turn, have their own risk increased. In fact, personal responsibility for risk could be said to be one of the key axioms of the form of society in which we now live. The welfare state was based on shared or socialized risk. The state took the responsibility for both physical and social security. Now the citizenry has been responsibilized, in David Garland's awkward but still telling word. The welfare state persists, 
and still reels from one physical crisis to the next, but much of the responsibility for security is thrown into the hands of private companies, vigilant communities, and fortified households. How this came to pass is a question that leads into the history of risk, and that's a subject in which Jonathan Simon has had a long-time interest. He's a professor of law and social policy at the University of California in Berkeley. And in recent work, he's drawn on a schema developed by French scholar François Evald. In a book called L'État de Providence, The Providential State, Evald distinguishes between two epochs. The first is what he calls providence, in which the chances of life are related to personal fate. Risk is a matter of luck, ability, or the will of God. The second begins to appear in the late 19th century with the first stirrings of the welfare state. And it's at the watershed between these two that Jonathan Simon picks up the story. The way to handle risk is not by sort of a focus on divine fate and personal pluck and skill, but on systemic, structural, social formations, the fact that there's going to be a certain number of deaths and injuries in the steel industry every year and or the coal industry. And as, as Lloyd George, the, the prime minister of Britain, famously put it, people should pay for the blood in the coal, in the price of the coal. And the way you do that is through insurance and whether publicly or privately provided. And, and, and that's a society of solidarity. It's a society where the industrial work accident is the model, not just for the industrial setting, but for sort of governing risk more generally. The era of solidarity and social insurance conceived the risks run by workers as a collective responsibility. The same approach was applied to crime. Crime was seen as the expression of a social milieu and therefore as a social responsibility. By the mid-20th century, the dominant model in the United States and Canada as well is a kind of social psychological picture of of deviance, of criminality as a kind of individual malady, but with roots in, in social conditions in the, in the slum and in, um, in economic conditions. And the dominant focus of sort of penal treatment, which is actually the term used by, for instance, the authors of the Model Penal Code, something written in the 50s and very influential in American law, penal treatment is a kind of psychotherapeutic diagnosis of the offender and uh, designing some kind of penal regime that will individualize their disease. And uh, California had became the exemplary state uh, after World War II in that regard, developing a uh, an indeterminate sentence that was so indeterminate that virtually any felon faced a sentence of something like you know, one year to life. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration. People convicted of a very first offense, a very minor felony, might not have. But most famously, uh, George Jackson, the, the revolutionary prisoner, became a famous revolutionary prisoner, went to prison the beginning of the 60s for a, um, a robbery he was involved in and was sentenced to five years to life. And of course, um, one of the things that began to delegitimize that system was the problems of often minority offenders like George Jackson, who didn't think they were getting treated very fairly by the system. But the idea in any event was that we could really diagnose crime in individuals, set a very individualized treatment model, and then try to accomplish that. During the 50s, and it, with increasing prominence in the 60s and 70s, that model comes under a severe attack by to some extent by the social science uh, 
folks that have been brought in to prove that it works. They begin to prove that it doesn't work. And, and more importantly, they begin to encourage the idea that we'd be better off if we're going to make decisions about you know, future criminality, we'd be better off doing it on a statistical basis. And there's a very famous monograph published in the 50s by Paul Meal, who just died recently, and I think at a very old age, uh, who was a psychologist who specialized in the study of parole and probation, and basically argued that the data proved that statistical prediction of future criminality was a much more reliable measure than, than any kind of clinical diagnosis could be. And, and basically, from the 50s through the late 70s, pretty much everywhere you look in the federal and state penal systems, you see the, the rise of this kind of statistically oriented focus. The idea of a statistical science of crime control arose in response to the unfairness and ineffectiveness of penal treatment. Instead of rehabilitating deviant individuals, the correctional system would develop statistical tools for predicting and managing risks. In his early writings, Jonathan Simon described this approach as an actuarial model of crime control. But he now thinks that this approach has been largely eclipsed by a popular lust for pure punishment without therapeutic or actuarial trappings. And he associates this new development with a third epoch described by Francois Evald. He contrasts what he now calls a society of safety to a society of solidarity or, or providence. And in, in the society of safety, the work accident is no longer the dominant model of the, of the accident or of risk that has to be managed. Instead, the catastrophic event, whether it's a nuclear power plant melting down, uh, a terrorist attack on a you know, giant uh, skyscraper, or uh, something more microscopic like the spread of AIDS in the blood supply, that promises the possibility of catastrophic losses in a way that is virtually impossible to predict actuarially and which doesn't lend itself to any possibility of sort of spreading the risk, and at least it defies easy ways of doing that, all seem to characterize this this new stage. And one of the things that Evald points out, which really ties together the crime and accident story, is that to the extent that people view themselves as faced with catastrophic risks, which can't be spread or compensated, a kind of punitiveness is, is a kind of natural response, because you begin to say, well, we, we, it's zero tolerance. We, we, we insist that no errors be made, and that if, you know, if people do make errors, only vengeance is, is really uh, available rather than compensation since the risks are so grave. What Francois Eval calls a society of safety shares certain attributes with Ulrich Beck's risk society. Both are overshadowed by threats that are too big and too singular to be insured. And in such a society, as Jonathan Simon argued in an earlier program in this series, crime comes to be seen as a kind of retail catastrophe. It's an everyday version of risk that is too terrible to be shared or spread as a social liability. He develops the point with reference to Pat O'Malley's earlier example of three-strike laws. There is a kind of risk logic in things like three strikes and, and other US innovations, as it were, like zero tolerance. But it's a very different risk logic than the kind of actuarial logic because it isn't dependent on a kind of statistical sense of probability. It's dependent on a kind of zero-sum vision of risk as being either 
totally on you or totally on me. And we certainly at a in a place now where once we define somebody as a criminal, even a relatively marginal or trivial criminal, our political and moral framework puts no break in front of just assigning them complete risk. We don't care, you know, how much destruction this penal measure will wreak on your life if we view it as providing even the most minimal reduction in the risk, as it were, of, of law-abiding citizens. So there's a kind of risk logic to it, but as I say, one that is dramatically different in a way than the risk logic of actuarialism. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Our subject tonight is risk. The program was one of a series called In Search of Security. It's presented by David Cayley. Contemporary society is haunted by risk. But that doesn't mean that the risks that get noticed are necessarily the most pressing threats. SARS crippled Toronto's tourist economy without there being even the slightest actual risk to people visiting the city. The things that frighten people most can sometimes be the least likely to happen. Alan Bonner is a former broadcaster, for a time here at CBC Radio, who's now a risk management consultant in Toronto. And in his field, he says, risks are understood as social constructions. Some risks get a great deal of attention legislation, money, tax dollars, and attention. And other risks that are far more dangerous are ignored. The Valdez oil spill that 60 Minutes does a documentary on some years later saying the worst environmental disaster in history, and I've even seen college textbooks with that reference. No one died. It was not terrorism. Scientists couldn't find or had great difficulty finding the oil two years later. Oil is biodegradable. It's a natural product made of decomposed living matter. 50% is, uh, evaporates within six hours. It's gone. Now, you don't want oil and water, but in terms of all the risks, that oil spill, which was the 32nd largest in history when it happened and about the 55th largest now, was so minor compared to the several hundred chemical spills in America that killed 200 people uh, within about five years of that event, and the PBB cattle feed poisoning in Michigan that caused a million farm animals to be slaughtered. But very few people have heard of those two incidents because it wasn't on CNN. It wasn't on the front page of the New York Times for 18 days straight, as Valdez was. Why with Exxon Valdez? With the Valdez incident, first of all, it was in a perceived frontier location, the last great American frontier, home of the bald eagle, which is a very emotional symbol for Americans, focused in one time and place, despite the fact that three times the amount of oil that's spilled in Valdez naturally seeps into the Earth's oceans through cracks and fissures, and more than three times the amount of oil that's spilled in Valdez is flushed down the sewers of North America by do-it-yourself oil changers. At least at the time, that was true. Then you had the lawyers lobbying for clients in a class action suit. You had environmental groups using it to raise money. You had congressional leaders holding hearings and making names for themselves. So the social amplification theory of risk says 
as a risk moves through different groups in society, such as lawyers and politicians and clergy who make statements from the pulpit and professors who teach things out of books uh, that say it was the worst environmental disaster in history and so on, the risk changes in its perception. That's why there's no objective quantity of risk. It changes and it gets magnified. Whereas the story about PBB poisoning, no doubt having an effect on mortality and morbidity in Michigan, is just not that sexy a story. Risks attract attention, Alan Bonner says, through a complex interplay of interests and stereotypes. And knowing what went wrong last time won't necessarily tell you what's going to go wrong next. There is no model that you can construct that will reveal the propensity of a tanker captain to have a couple of vodkas and then drive his ship. There is no statistic that you can manufacture. There is no statistic you can manufacture on the propensity of workers to see an alarm go off in their chemical plant and then go on an hour and 10 minute tea break and come back to look after the alarm. That's Bhopal, India. There's no model that you can construct that will tell you the likelihood of an airline pilot to see that he has an engine on fire and follow his procedure except he turns off the good engine instead of turning off the bad engine. Thus he has no engines and he crashes, and that's an MD-11 crash in the Midlands in England. Or the likelihood of two deadheading pilots noticing that there is ice on the wings of a plane and that the plane will probably crash, but they don't tell the pilot in charge because that would be a breach of protocol. I believe that's Dryden. So we don't want a rational and objective and statistical view of risk. That is one input, and it is a valuable input, and I want it. But I also want to know about the human condition because we are not dealing with robots. We're dealing with people who have sometimes irrational behavior. So we don't need a rational approach to discover the irrational. Let's say you and I owned an airline and we knew that it was the safest mode of transportation beyond a thousand kilometers to fly by plane. Safer than car, safer than train, very safe. Yet after 911, people were not flying on our airlines. Well, what do we do? Do we write a letter to them? Dear passenger, please be advised you are wrong in your perception, and we are chagrined at your behavior. Now, that may be rational, but it's not going to save your airline. You have to do something to address the irrational fears, the non-statistically based behavior of human beings if you're going to manage risk. Risk assessment is a fallible and all-too-human enterprise. This is something that is well known to criminologists who regularly prove that public perceptions of crime are wildly out of whack with its actual frequency. But some criminologists, and some police as well, have begun to realize that perception is what they have to deal with. Kevin Hagerty teaches criminology at the University of Alberta. It's a standard moment in any first or second year criminology course where the instructor standing up there suggests that you know, our fears of crime are irrational because they don't correspond with the statistical likelihood. I think that's on one hand true, and on another hand, I think it misses larger points about the inability of most people to actually 
know what the real likelihood is of being victimized in certain ways. You know, what is my likelihood as a Caucasian man living in Alberta in a certain neighborhood of having my house broken into? I have, you know, this is my job, this is my profession. I have no idea what those numbers are. And there's a whole bunch of books out there who, that make that assumption that why Americans are afraid of the wrong things. Well, what would be the right thing? I think it misses those psychological dimensions of certain types of fear. I think it misses the fact that we don't know what the real statistics are in these issues, and really we most of us never could know them. So there's all kinds of problems with that easy dismissal of people's fears. I think they should be taken more seriously. And it's interesting because in some ways this is one of the more interesting developments in policing. That's the rise of an attempt to deal with fear of crime as a phenomena in itself. Police traditionally have been concerned with how much crime is there? Have we reduced the crime level X percent? Have we, how many people have we caught? And I think they've found over the years that, you know, you can reduce the crime rate by three, six, nine percent, and people might still be more afraid than they were before. So police are now taking an active role in trying to deal with the fear of crime which is really quite interesting because it leads police to be concerned with things like aesthetics. It leads police to be concerned with things like, you know, street usage patterns and things that can have an effect on how people are afraid of places. For example, lighting. Whether or not lighting in the downtown core has any effect on crime might be irrelevant if what you're trying to actually do is affect people's fear of crime. Risk society is clearly not a place where people generally have precise actuarial knowledge of risk. But it is a place where both individuals and institutions increasingly base their decisions on such knowledge of risk as they do have. And according to Kevin Hagerty, one of the main institutions now providing this knowledge is the police. In 1997, Hagerty, along with his colleague Richard Erickson, published a book called Policing the Risk Society. The book drew on five years of research, during which Erickson and Hagerty observed the work of several police organizations and interviewed many of their officers and administrators. Their research overturned the popular image of policing as all about catching criminals and enforcing the law. They concluded, Kevin Hagerty says, that the greater part of police work actually consists in gathering and communicating information about risk. In Canada, a police officer goes to one indictable crime occurrence a week. They make one indictable crime arrest every three weeks, and they make one indictable crime conviction every nine months. What you have there, what those numbers reveal, is that our stereotypical notions of what the police do don't make sense. What we want to do is try and figure out, well, what, you know, if they aren't doing that type of crime-busting work, what are they doing? And what we found was that a great deal of work that police officers do is knowledge work, broadly conceived. And the way to think about that is just the sheer amount of time that police officers spend doing paperwork. It's unbelievable. At the time of our research, the RCMP had over 2,000 operational forms. And at a, let's say, a um, impaired driving incident where there's an accident, 
that might take you know 30 minutes, 40 minutes to clean up on the street and take two and a half hours to fill out paperwork. And that would take like 16 different forms they'd have to fill out. Unbelievable amounts of information that goes everywhere. Some of it goes to the courts. Some of it goes through actions. Massive amounts of it go to insurance agencies. It goes to Stats Canada, health and welfare, customs. The list goes on and on. Car accident information would be important to the highway authorities. So the police are collecting all manner of information that is important for these other institutions. And these other institutions are working in a risk type of template. They're not doing a law enforcement arrest everybody type of template. Certainly the insurance industry isn't. They're trying to manage roads. They're trying to manage uh, behavior. They're trying to pool risks. So we're trying to point out that although the public face of the police is very much one of law enforcement locking up uh, bad guys, which is part of what they do, they're also instrumentally important in this broader network of risk-based governance that's done by a whole range of institutions throughout society. According to Kevin Hagerty and Richard Erickson, the police supply numerous other institutions with the information these institutions need to manage risk. Their research yields a picture in which the governance of crime is not centered on the police, but dispersed through the whole network of institutions that the police serve. Richard Erickson cites the management of property crime as an example. Police supply the data for insurance classifications, he says, but the insurance companies actually do the law enforcement. What is the governing law and system for dealing with property crime? Most people would say, first and foremost, it's the criminal law. But I would say, first and foremost, it's the law of insurance, in particular the insurance contract, which forces each property holder to be a self-policing agent, meaning they have to, according to the contract, invoke certain preventative security arrangements, they have to turn over certain information to insurance companies and so on. And there's a whole sanctioning system built into this, uh, by which I mean that, in a sense, Everybody who's a property owner and has an insurance policy is required to be a preventative security agent, and they're always treated as a suspect, uh, suspected of not doing enough in preventative security on behalf of the insurance company and other insureds in the risk pool. And if they actually have a burglary uh, experience, they are the offender. They've allowed a breach of security to occur, and they're punished through the contract by higher premiums, higher deductibles, perhaps more exclusions. And if they're recidivists, they keep on having victimization. Uh, they end up losing uh, insurance entirely. Okay, so that's the whole regulatory system and policing system uh, in relation to property crime, which is far more significant than the criminal law and the criminal justice system and the, the role of the police in that system as criminal law enforcers. In that system, uh, it's a classic of what I'm arguing, the police are, again, first and foremost, simply information brokers to insurance companies. According to Richard Erickson, individuals are increasingly being made responsible for their own security. The insurance company doesn't punish the thief for robbing you, or the police for failing to prevent the robbery. It punishes you. Risk is individualized. The police, on this view, no longer guarantee public safety. 
Rather, they serve as advisors and preceptors who help the citizens keep themselves safe. They very much uh, do this through, first of all, the, the mass media. Toronto Police Force would be a classic example. You can show a huge expansion in its public affairs media relations department. They have several dozen full-time people in that unit now. It's grown very substantially, so they're constantly feeding information to the media. Involvement in school programs uh, used to be probably limited to Elmer, the safety elephant, and the the, the you know, officer going and giving a little lesson about traffic safety. Now they go and give lessons about uh, all manner of risks, drug awareness, personal safety. In many jurisdictions, now you have uh, police officers actually stationed in schools, institutionalized uh, school officer programs where they literally are part of the school have an office there, give regular instruction on a wide range of things, even go into other classes and participate in, for example, a math class by showing how they do measurements of an accident scene or things like that. They will, you know, go out and, of course, give lectures to community groups, again, about uh, public safety, about, for example, uh, neighborhood watch uh, programs and how citizens can participate in those programs and so on. So very much um, out there as experts, counselors and advisors about a wide range of risks, crime in particular, but not limited to crime. By disseminating knowledge of risk, police enable citizens to become their own risk managers. But when all the emphasis is thrown on protecting oneself, the old idea of crime as deviance, or aberration, is overshadowed, Kevin Hagerty says, and routine crime ceases to be a defining moral issue for the community. There was a notion that breaking a law transgressed social boundaries and that the society's response to that served to solidify our boundaries. And I think there is something to that. Anyone who watches for example, the media response to certain types of horrific crimes, you feel like you're part of a community. What we're suggesting is that in the attempt to treat crimes as routine risks, some of the lower-level crimes lose that symbolic quality or that symbolic quality is reduced. It's just something that you should take precautions against. It's just something that you should plan around, get your insurance, buy stronger locks, don't go out at certain times. So that normative moral reaction it is sometimes blunted. And I think you have to be careful here because it exists on the one hand in the media with the most spectacular crimes, but in you know the governing of, of these types of more routine crimes, which are the vast majority of them, I mean vast, vast majority of them, they're treated much more as a normal accident. Treating crime as a normal accident, something to be expected, heightens awareness of risk. Be wary. Buy an alarm. Street-proof your children are the constant messages from the police. And these messages, however warranted, create an attitude and an atmosphere of suspicion. In Richard Erickson's view, this attitude fits a larger pattern in contemporary society, where people are generally known by their risk profiles. 
Institutions define you by your credit history, your cholesterol reading, your area code. And this produces what he calls a decline of innocence. The basic formulation there is that we're increasingly a society of strangers. You're not known personally. You're known only through the kind of credentials that you can produce that are institutionally relevant. So increasingly, you're treated as suspect, if you like, until you can produce those credentials. An obvious example would be, you know, if you have a credit card, and better still, if you have one that's a, a gold card or a sapphire card or whatever it happens to be, that will give you instant credentials for transactions. But until you produce these credentials, which again are risk credentials because they profile you, you may well be excluded from that institution or treated as a suspect. So there's a decline of innocence in the sense there's a decline of trust that you will not be trusted, accepted until you produce those credentials. There's a presumption of guilt. There's a presumption that uh, you don't have a useful purpose, a proper purpose, until you can show otherwise. Now, again, proving otherwise is often a very routine matter. It's often a very routine uh, transaction with sophisticated uh, information systems and surveillance systems and so on. But I, my argument is that just in general, this is the, the kind of uh, sensibility that is created. An atmosphere of mistrust, in Richard Erickson's view, is inherent in the very logic of risk society. The more we pay attention to risk, the more risks appear. An example that impressed me occurred not long ago when the World Health Organization made it known that stairs present the world's leading risk of injury. When you think about it, no activity is ever entirely innocent of risk. So the habit of risk awareness constantly produces knowledge of new risks. In their book, Policing the Risk Society, Erickson and Hagerty catch this self-propelling quality of risk in a pithy formula. Fear proves itself. Fear proves itself in the sense that we're constantly in an environment where we're looking for knowledge of risks that we can act on, but in fact, in terms of the strict definition of actually having data on probability and severity, First of all, we often don't have direct good data on that or we're dependent on somebody, an expert, telling us uh, how we should think about that. Or there may be many situations where we just don't have good information. And so what the tendency is in society is what we call the precautionary principle, and that is that people increasingly acting on fear take extreme precautions, you know, restrict their activities or indeed demand more surveillance and information systems to try and get some handle on a risk. The more these systems are developed, the more, in a sense, surveillance is visible. Uh, that's also a sign that things are uncertain, that there's a need for this, uh, which can fuel even more fear. So the classic example would be going through certain urban environments. I mean, at least in imagery, Los Angeles is always evocative um, and seeing uh, 
huge defensible space type buildings, uh, surveillance cameras, security people all over the place, that just in a sense fuels more fear that this is a place that one should stay out of or should one should only move quickly between what appear to be secure environments and so on. So there's a kind of fueling of fear through the very mechanisms that are supposed to alleviate fear. And this leads to more and more extreme precaution. And we, we may say that we're now in a kind of precautionary society where any imaginable risk is uh, subject to extreme measures, extreme caution, or even pre-caution, pre-hyphen caution, not being cautious about even how we're being cautious. This sounds like a spiral to me as you describe it. Is there in principle a limit to it? I suppose one might say that depends very much on the particular type of risk and context you're looking at. And I suppose one of the interesting questions is the resource limitations. But what I would suggest indicates a limitless dread, a limit, limitless side is, is what's happened uh, post-September 11th, where if you take the American government in particular, I mean, it's literally spending hundreds of billions of dollars in all kinds of fanciful efforts at, at security and risk assessment, developing more information about populations and so on and so forth. You ask, well, what good is this doing? Well, how do you know? Uh, how do you measure what the preventative effect is? How how do you measure what is enough in what context? How far do you take this? How much of the society's resources do you take up in this kind of activity? Is risk, in your view, alienating in the sense that if I think of myself as uh, not myself but as someone like me, <laughs> I develop a habit of thought, uh, thinking what might happen to someone like me rather than what is happening to me myself? That's a very interesting thought, and I think, yes, it is. I think um, knowledge of risk is alienating in the sense that you're always thinking in terms of counterfactuals about what else uh, you might do, who else you might be, what other action you might have or could have taken and so it, it creates this uh, constant angst and, as you say, ultimately alienation. You're always looking at yourself in terms of your data double, if you like. Richard Erickson is pointing here to a number of problems inherent in risk society. One is the alienating character of risk. People are governed and govern themselves based on probabilities. The old are prescribed medicines for diseases they might develop. Prisoners are kept in jail for offenses they might commit. Individual biography is swallowed up by a probability function. But very often, as Richard Erickson says, we have no definite knowledge of risk. And this leads to the ascending spiral of fear and precaution he has described. The war on terrorism is a good example. Many Western countries, and the United States especially, have responded to the threat of terrorism by throwing a precautionary net over their whole society. 
the American Defense Department's program of total information awareness, so-called, symbolizes this effort at comprehensive surveillance. But this is not the only alternative. A more discriminating effort to pinpoint the precise threats would have been possible. But remedying the intelligence failure implied by 9-11 never became a focus of subsequent American policy. The opportunity to increase surveillance and police power on a broader scale was too tempting. This illustrates, I think, where an unlimited pursuit of security against risk can lead. Prudence has always been a virtue, but there's a world of difference between prudence and epidemic fear. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 9 of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series concludes next Wednesday with a program about surveillance. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant, Liz Nage, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts today and between the covers. <laughs> <laughs>